and indeed it seemed that way. Hitler was killing people, attacking different nations around wherever he could. The Japanese were beginning to make food in the Pacific. And he recalled a point from his childhood that he heard at school. I'm going to read this, and I'd like to see if it reminds you of any scripture. It reminds you of the church. It reminds you of people. Here it is. Who is in charge yeah. of the planetary right. The axles creak and the coupling strain. And the pace is hot and the points are near. And sleep has deafened the driver's ear. And the signals flash to the night in vain. For death is in charge of the planetary train. There is a certain confusion today, a certain feeling of lack of control, like it occurred years and years ago in the church. Mr. Armstrong was policy at the helm. Uh, we knew who was in charge of the train, Jesus Christ, through Mr. Armstrong, through the ministry, through the people, through the deacons, wherever. Uh, there was a line of authority we all recognized, and everything seemed to be in order. We thought we would move right through the problems that were coming up in the body. You would, or a great number of that many might leave, but we would stay intact as a body, would know where we were going, would wind up in a place of safety, and all kinds of things would break loose on the earth. But it hasn't quite worked that way, and we pray that God will give us guidance, that he will give us direction, that we will know what is going to happen next and how to handle it. How is it going to impact us? And those are hard questions right now, because the church fracturing into smaller and smaller groups. Uh, I don't need to rehearse all the things that are happening. We're very, very much aware of them and wondering what to do and how to do it. We just love for Christ to come down and tell us what he wants us to do next, wouldn't we? Well, maybe he does. Maybe he tells us what is about to happen and how it will happen. I refer you back to the sermon given by John on the Mark of the Feast a few weeks ago, where he talked about Revelation 6 and where we are in prophecy. <clears throat> At the time of the fifth seal, with elements of the sixth perhaps beginning to occur. So let's go back to Revelation 6, because I want to pick this up and see what the fifth seal actually pretends for us. Since that's where we are, we should know what is about to happen and ultimately how to deal with it. We know what these are. Four horsemen here. War, famine, disease. We don't need to read through all of that entirely. But it reminded me of a poem... My memory isn't as good as Winston Churchill's, but it reminded me of a poem I recited in school at English Lit, and that's been many, many years ago. And I don't remember the author, nor do I remember the whole poem, but I remember the punchline. If you're telling jokes, it's bad to remember just the punchline. But the essence of it was, and some of you will recognize this, and the horsemen came riding, riding, and the horsemen came riding. And then would have a little verse, and it would repeat, and the horsemen came riding, riding, and the horsemen came riding. Did this several times. And it gave you a feeling of the inexorability of it, that it was relentless, that the horsemen were coming, and that it portended something evil and foul and dark for those who were waiting for the horses to come. And as John mentioned in that sermon, he feels that those seals were opened long ago, shortly after Christ began the church, that they are a continuous thing. As each seal opens, it continues to happen until the time that Christ returns to the earth. So we've seen through history the effects of famine and war and pestilence. We're seeing it increasing now. As we get closer and closer to the end, we see it happening more and more. Maybe it doesn't affect you too much, but if you told somebody in one of the hot spots of the world today, say Rwanda, about this, made him conscious of what this meant, he would think that it's there right now as the machine gun bullets fall around him and that he starves to death. It's a 
bullet going to get you, or is starvation, or is disease. Increasingly, it's happening around the world. Now, let's skip down to the fifth, since that's basically where we're going to be talking today. And pick it up here in verse 9 of Revelation 6. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Now, this is talking not just about the world in general with famine and pestilence, but there's a change here. This is talking about people of God and the church of God. The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Does that indicate to you that the word of God, that the truth, is something very, very important to begin with? Not something to allow to slip away from us, but to be very careful with the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood of them that dwell on the earth? You and I sometimes think, How long, O God, before you return and stop this? And we haven't seen anything yet, not according to what we're about to see today. And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season. Now, their blood was crying out metaphorically from the ground. I think we understand that. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So those people died back there, and they are not going to be resurrected until you and I are killed. Maybe not you, maybe not me, but we, some of us, are going to be killed. And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely fig when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains fled, hid under the rock, and said, Hide our faces from him that come. I have a question for you. Is this the weekend? If the first, second, third, fourth, fifth have been opened, when is the sixth going to be opened? And when is this going to occur? It's going to happen one of these weekends. I remember seeing someone I know just before I left home yesterday, and I said, have a good weekend. I don't know for sure what I was telling him. Because if this is the weekend that the sixth seal is open. I expect to see some mighty tremendous things begin to happen. Now, I'm not here to make a prophecy today. But someone else has said, as John Reed was mentioning in the announcement, that with Jupiter about to be bombarded by this comet, who knows what will happen? Scientists don't really. Maybe nothing much. Maybe it'll go blip, and that's about it. Or maybe the Earth will rock and reel as a crazy man. And maybe it will upset the entire solar system. Something is, one of these days, the reason a minister picked this weekend uh, for a great earthquake in Southern California, as we're probably aware, was that the great soccer matches here, football, baseball, and basketball are basically fiddly little games compared to soccer in this world, American spectators aside. So the greatest audience that has probably ever been assembled is going to be watching the Rose Bowl today for the um, consolation game and tomorrow for the championship World Cup soccer. And the Rose Bowl, as we're aware, is only, what, two or three miles from Pasadena campus. Now, the reason for thinking this could happen this weekend is because I think tomorrow and Monday are at 9th and 10th. Today is at the Temple. Temples were destroyed. The idea being <coughs> that Pasadena could be wounded in the head and perhaps 
The auditorium be shaken down, Pasadena be shaken to the ground? I don't know whether that's so or not. I'm not predicting that. I'm telling you what someone else said. And they could be right. It is going to happen one of these weekends. I'm not talking about the auditorium. I'm talking about the sixth seal. If it doesn't happen in the middle of the week. I mean, it's soon is what I'm trying to get across. Now, as we get into this, imagine that the auditorium were not shaken down. Imagine if everything for miles around the auditorium were shaken down. Because we are going to come into prominence in the world soon. I say we, meaning the greater Church of God and its various splits. We'll see that a little later on. Bear that thought in mind as we continue. What would happen, though, were everything else to take down? I'm not predicting it. I'm just giving you a little speculation of what is here. And then what if some great miracles began to occur from that one building standing all by itself? Would that get the world's attention? We are going to be hated of all nations. We have to first become known of all nations. We are not, presently. So if we're between the fifth and the sixth, the intensity has to develop here. Let's go back to Acts 2, Matthew 24 for a moment. Matthew 24. <clears throat> and here the disciples, as we're aware, asked about the, his coming and of the end of the world. Take heed that no man deceive you, in verse 4 was his first warning. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. I don't think we are particularly troubled at this point, are we? I mean, we see it happening. We know it is about to occur, that it's going to intensify. But we're not troubled to the point of being fearful of our lives yet. That's happening in Rwanda. It isn't happening in the United States. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Now notice it, it sort of gives a break here in verse 8. It says, all these are the beginning of sorrow. These things have been continuing now for quite a few centuries. You can go back to a bloody time. People didn't go out to watch the Raiders and the Cowboys on Sunday. They went out to watch the Lions and the Christians. That was a form of sport. What's the lion ripped the Christians apart? And those are our brothers, some of them, who died for the testimony of the word of God. They are our brothers whose blood was shed out there and made a mockery of and laughed at and cheered. And it's coming to you and me except for the grace of God that might deliver us out of it. Are you ready for it to happen this weekend? not ready for it to happen this weekend, and if indeed it doesn't happen this weekend, when will you be ready? Will it be next weekend that you'll be ready? I think sometimes, brethren, that you and I, maybe especially me, don't take it seriously enough when God says overcome. John keeps Battering that, and I do, and John Lee does, and everybody, I guess, in the sermon that comes up and speaks does in one form or another. But I wonder when we are going to really take that to heart and realize we have some overcoming to do. I'm not trying to be corrected here. I said especially in the end of minute. But what I want to do is, if I somehow might us a little to understand that these things really are going to come to pass. It really isn't very far off. We used to talk about it and wonder how it was going to happen, and right now we are in the midst of it. We see it happening around us every day. Something comes in from somewhere. The McElveney report lately uh, had a, I don't usually quote from that, but uh, had a report in there about the gay marches and the abortion uh, bills 
were passed and so on. And he did a really neat parallel between earthquakes that have occurred in the last few years, and they occurred at or immediately thereafter an abortion uh, decision was passed by the Supreme Court, or there was a gay rights march. Just incredible. And he called it the wrath of God. But we see things happening around us that we're trying to make sense of it. Maybe we should put it into context here a little bit. So all these are the beginning of sorrow. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. What can we expect? Will the fog continue that we're in? Will God give us clear and ready answers to where we're headed, how and why? Will we suddenly see doors swing open and we can march right through? Is God going to answer us in that matter, or will the fog continue? I think we'll see the answer to that as continuous. What can we expect of men? What can we expect of the church? What can we expect of faith? And what can we expect of God? Maybe to boil it down to those four categories. What are you going to see from those four categories in the next month and few years to come? Let's go back to the book of Daniel. When Daniel saw a vision, a dream of these events, he was sick many days. It made him ill. Now, Daniel, was, was Daniel, let's ask this question, was Daniel just a little Jew boy who was working for the government who had been castrated and spoke with a high voice and was kind of naive as to what was going on in the world? If you read the account here, you'll find that this was a very intelligent man, a very powerful man, second in charge in the kingdom under the king. And he was not naive. He probably remembered the operation if he were old enough. That was an unforgettable thing in his life. This man had seen a lot of blood and gore. He was at the very top of one of the meanest Gentile kingdoms that had ever existed. He knew of people being ordered to be killed. He knew. And he was ordered to be cast for the lions himself. This was not a man who was naive. This was a man who understood a great deal and had seen a lot of blood and gore in his life. He saw this. It made him sick. You remember when John saw the, read the little book in Revelation that it made his better, Bill, can't talk, belly bitter too. And this was a man who had seen a great deal in his life and had seen the church start coming apart before his very eyes sat on that Isle of Patmosphere incognito, not able to do much. Let's pick it up back here. Uh, let's see. Start at Daniel 7 and verse 11. Well, that's not exactly where I wanted to go. Uh, down to verse 21, actually, is where I wanted to pick this up talking about the beast, the fourth beast of the Roman Empire. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So there's your clue right there. He made war with the saints. So this is an end-time prophecy. And he prevailed against them. Now that gives you a little bit of a clue of what God might or might not be doing during this period of time. He is going to allow the beast to prevail against his people. Says so right here. Do we think we're going to have a just easy breeze life here on out? One of these days somebody'll say, an angel sat on my shoulder and said it's time to go to a place of safety and here's where it is and here's your ticket. That's not the way it reads, as far as I see. It said, and he prevailed against them how long? Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high. And the came, time came that they saints possessed the kingdom. So Satan is going to prevail, basically, from now on out, against the saints of God. That's a scary thought when you look at some of the carnage that occurred in the last 1900 years since Christ.
Oh, here's, this is an interesting verse, too, in verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Not just kill, but wear out like old socks or underwear. You feel that way sometimes, the pressures that come in on you? No, things have changed. Used to, you could make a living, feed your family, just one man. Now it takes two incomes, maybe two and a half. And all kinds of stress and strain and traffic jams and all the things we hard to have in life. And on top of that, we have the mental battles and spiritual battles we're fighting day in and day out. To some, it just becomes tiresome. God isn't just when we get on our knees. Does God answer all your prayers and solve all your problems for you like a genie in a bottle? Doesn't happen, does it? When we get desperate, we really need something, and it's life-threatening or it's serious, we get answers. But a lot of the times, we don't get answers for a lot of these day-in and day-out stresses and problems and difficulties. You have problems, some of them difficulties you've dealt with for years and years. You're not getting answers to all those. Satan is wearing us out. That's why God says, he who endures to the end. And to me, endurance indicates a great deal of pressure. When you're in a short race, you just run as fast as you can. You don't have to endure much. As soon as you get to the end, finish line 100 yards later, it's done. But when you're in an endurance race, you just sort of wear out by the time you get to the end. He's going to wear us out like a dirty shirt. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall give it into his hand until a time and time for the dividing of time. So up until Christ returns, Satan is going to wear out the saints. Now to chapter 8, verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Now this talks about a fierce king who's going to stand up with a dark countenance, in, uh, in verse 23. And he shall destroy wonderfully, not by his own power, but by the power of Satan the devil, and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. We're called mighty. We're also going to be destroyed. Some of us. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. And even stand up against the prince of princes, which shall be broken without hand. So ultimately it's going to be taken care of. But right away, will the fog continue? What does it say in Matthew 24? It says that the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. That means to me that the fog is going to continue. I hate to be the, the bringer of bad news. Somebody can stone me when I'm done. But the confusion is going to grow greater and greater and greater, far more so than today. This is nothing yet. What happens when start great signs and wonders and miracles begin to occur over here, and others begin to occur over here? How do you sort it out? Is this of God or is this of the devil? Throw a stick on the ground, it becomes a snake. Is that of God or is that of the devil? Throw another rod down, it becomes a snake. It gets into a hissing match, God's snake's going to win. Ultimately. But how do you know? This could be very, very confusing. There is a way to know. Do they preach the truth? Do they have the doctrines of God? If they have this doctrine, then they are of God if they follow it. But people are losing doctrine, aren't they? They're beginning to see, think that doctrine isn't important. But as long as you have love in your heart, you're fine. As long as we have grace, we're okay. Are you going to remember the doctrines of God? Very elect will be the only ones that will ultimately see through the fog and the confusion. So I don't really think that it's going to get that much clearer for a while. I really don't. I pray for it, I hope for it, I wish the doors would swing open and we'd know exactly what to do and where to go, but uh, we're looking at a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, but a famine of the preaching of the Word of God. 
it's hard to find the truth anymore for most people. They don't even know where to look. Or they're sitting in a chair somewhere thinking they have it and it's departed completely and they don't even know it. And they expect to be able to see the right answers and they don't have the truth anymore. There's going to be, it appears from the book of Daniel here, a very, very great betrayal. What can we expect of men? Let me go back to Matthew 24 just for a moment. Verse 10. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Many will be offended. Now that's people who have known the truth of God. They can't betray you and hate you if they're not one of you in this sense. And many false prophets shall rise and shall be seen many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You want to know what expects of men? You're going to expect less love, less of God's Holy Spirit, more sin, the love of many waxing cold, defending one another, and ultimately betraying one another. One place says, don't even trust the wife of your bosom. You can't trust anybody. Much as you might love your mate. Never know, do you? Spiritually, who's going to stick? Who's going to be close to God? Well, who might have some very, very dark things happening down inside the recesses of their mind that you cannot even begin to discern or understand? We don't know what's going on deeply down in somebody's mind, do we? We can judge to some degree by the fruit, by the general appearance, by the attitude. We can't really know what's going on deep down inside. How can wolves creep in unawares? Because they appear as angels of light. They really do appear as angels of light. But they're ravening wolves with big, shining teeth. So it's hard to tell. The acid test is the word of God, but there will be betrayal. Now let's go back to Daniel again. Daniel 9, I, I won't spend a great deal of time on, but it, it's certainly worth reading through and seeing the attitude that Daniel had when he saw these things happening, dreams and visions and so on. And the prayer he prayed, because it, it, it was written for us upon whom the ends of the world are drawing near. This is the prayer we need to have in our minds. A plea to God to forgive our iniquities, to admit our iniquities, to pray for his deliverance. Then verse 18, or verse 17, your sanctuary is desolate for the Lord's sake. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and behold our desolation in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, but for your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pardon and do. Defer not for your own sake, O oh my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. The way he wound up his prayer. Now let's go on over to Daniel 11, because there's something in here that is very interesting. This chapter talks about the king of the south and the king of the north, and how they'll start pushing back and forth, alliances that occur, the king's daughter, perhaps referring to a physical person or perhaps a church, They'll make some alliances. They'll finally turn against the Isles in Britain. And then how one person, a razor of taxes, is going to be there in verse 20, and he'll be destroyed neither in anger nor in battle, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flattery. So he's going to take over the rule through politics. And there's a league made here with a strong small people and so on. But that's not what I want to get to, just to lay a little background here. Uh, two of these kings will get together, their hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall seek lies at one table, for they'll sit down to talk, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. A visible world rule has to take over 
put off what is going to occur, but God says the time appointed is going to occur. Verse 28, Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And who is involved in the holy covenant? God on one side, and his chosen called out ones on the other side. Those are the ones he made the covenant with. We made a covenant with God at baptism. So that's talking about true Christians. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Now, who is he going to do those exploits against? You guess. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter, for the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. Now, somehow in here, we are going to reach world prominence. We're going to be one of the players on the world scene. We're going to be hated of all nations. Something is going to occur here where he's going to be very hostile toward the people of God. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So this is going to be done on such a world stage that he's going to come back and hate those who are still keeping the covenant, and he is going to have intelligence with those who forsake that covenant, those who had the covenant and lost it. This is very interesting reading. I would not have understood this a few years ago. I thought, well, what does that mean? But I think I can understand it now. But somewhere here, someone is going to stand who has forsaken the covenant of God, a grievous wolf who has entered into the flock at some point, and is going to stand on the world stage with the leaders of the world. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination and make desolate. Now is this the beast, the false prophet? Does it also include those who have forsaken the covenant? Here when it says they, it would appear so. They shall place the abomination and make desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flattery. So here is a powerful being who is going to flatter, who is going to receive those who forsaken the covenant with open arms, tell them what wonderful new Christians they are, and how they've embraced being born again, and embraced, ultimately, the lie of lies. You shall not surely die. You're born again. You have an immortal soul. Once you accept predestination and born again, you have basically accepted Satan's first and biggest and most foul lie. You have it made. You were predestined to be here, and now you're born again, and everything's hunky-dory. So this looks like a marriage made in heaven, doesn't it? Or does it? Now let's tie this in a little bit with, uh, first of all, John 16. And verse 1. These things have I spoken to you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Now, who is they? These, he, he was speaking to his disciples, okay? His very own disciples. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Now, it appears to me that the only synagogue that I would ever be in would be the synagogue of God. I'm not going to the Baptist or the Catholic or the Buddhist temple. I go only, or have gone, only to that which I consider the synagogue of God, and certainly it was. But it says someone is going to kick me out of the synagogue, and that's the only one I'm going to be in. So it must be someone within who is kicking me out. I think that's just practical common sense, isn't it? Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. So someone who thinks he is worshiping God 
will kill you and kill me and think he's doing a wonderful thing for God like Paul did at one point in his life. So it would appear to me that whoever is doing this is someone who is or has been in God's church and who has gone apostate and is involved. I'm not naming any names here. I'm just talking in general terms. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 for a moment and see how this impacts us. Paul writing to the second to the Thessalonians here, 2nd chapter, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter is from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now I think we could say that that is occurring. People are falling away from the truth of God. And that man of sin be revealed a son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the church of God, showing himself that he is God. doesn't necessarily say it to you and me, but he shows himself that he is God, or in the a vicar of God, in the place of God, or his word is as good as God, or however he phrases it to himself, but sits in the church of God, the temple of God. Now, there's been some talk back and forth, and I don't, I'm not sure here. Uh, I have felt at times that Second Thessalonians 2 is talking about two individuals, not just one. And what we just read in Daniel might seem to indicate something there. Let's go on down and see that. Here is someone who sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, I assume there the temple of God that Paul was referring to was the church of the living God. Because he's talking to his disciples, church people, who are talking, I mean, he's talking about the people of God, the church of God. Couldn't be anything else. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And then later on, of course, all through here, talks about the grievous wolves that would come in. Read the book of Jews sometimes. See what you can expect of men. There it even goes on into demons, and you can't tell where the man stops and the demon starts in the book of Jews, because it seems that the men are possessed of demons, is what it amounts to. Verse 6, And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. So something was withholding or holding this back. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Well, where was the mystery of iniquity going to work? It was going to work within the church. Only he who now allows will allow until he be taken out of the way. So someone was allowing this mystery of iniquity to begin to come into the church. And John warned about it. Others of the apostles warned about it. And it was occurring. We see it, I think, occurring today. But this individual is going to be taken out of the way. And it seems there's a break here. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. It allows the love of the truth to slip away. Now, is this or is this not talking about two people? One who sits in the church and exalts himself, and another, whom the book of Revelation talks about, who is destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. I think there's a distinct possibility that this could be. In fact, I brought this scripture up to Mr. Armstrong, I think, in 1980. Two or three, somewhere right in there, and he said, well, that could be. Didn't say for sure, and I still don't know for sure. It could be talking about just the beast, false prophet here, or it could be talking about another individual who is also involved. But it seems to me, back in Daniel 11, this is talking about a betrayal that occurred. And I've often wondered if, now that 
some elements of the church are not moving more and more toward Protestantism, more and more toward Catholicism. You take born again and immortal soul more toward Buddhism and Hinduism, too, if you want to talk about it that way. Toward the Babylonian mystery system, the way of Cain. And wanting so desperately to be accepted of the world. Will that acceptance be there? And what if that betrayal and that alliance occurs? They are allowed to be a part of the World Council of Churches and maybe even a part of the beast and Babylonian system. What is this intelligence about here? They will have intelligence with them. Well, who is going to be hated? Those who are hated are the ones who continue and do not forsake the covenant of God. Those are the ones that they will hate. Those are the ones they will have intelligence about. Do you have the names and the addresses of these people? Do you know how I might find them? Do you have photographs of them from an old folk truck man? Help me find these people. Now I'm speculating here to some degree. I'm trying to draw a picture. I'm not saying it will happen exactly this way. But it certainly seems that something of this nature is in the book of Daniel. Let's go on down. Verse 32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flattery, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. It appears here that we're getting to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and the final fulfillment. Many will be deceived. They will try to kill all of God's people, but some who do know their God will do exploit. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they, those who do know the truth and those that do exploit, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flattery, even those who do keep the covenant and perhaps perform great miracles will have those who cleave to them with flattery who aren't truly converted and who don't really know and understand and feel a need to obey their God and serve him in every way and yield to him. They'll have people cling to them with flatteries. They just don't quite get it. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. And the king shall do according to his will. This individual who stands up as the beast, false prophet, and this combine will do as he pleases. What do we expect from God in the next few years? In one sense, brethren, less and less. He is going to allow Satan, the devil, and these men to prevail against the saints of God. We would expect in some ways God would be giving us more and more, but in some ways less and less. Now, some will do exploits, so I guess in that sense we expect more and more from kind of a two-edged sword, more and more and less and less at the same time. Now you are going to face a situation, oh, and maybe you already are feeling the pinch, and I touched on it a little earlier, that God is gone off. He doesn't answer your prayers anymore. You see, we in America are used to a standard of living. And since we've become accustomed to that, we expect it more or less. We're sort of spoiled. And when we see these blessings being removed from Israel and we see these blessings being removed from our bank accounts and our driveways, we see our cars going away, 
will think, God isn't blessing us anymore. What's happening here? And it might even shake the foundation of our spiritual house to see things happening, and we're not getting answers. Now, what did Christ promise us in the end? Just the faith. Just the very faith. Food and water. Just enough to get us by. He didn't say we would remain in prosperity. Did Israel suffer some of the same places that Egypt did? Did they go through some before a separation was made? Yes, they did. The parallel is there. And we, we're already in it, aren't we? We've already seen our dollar shrink to the point it takes two incomes now. We already see a lot of the blessings being removed from Israel. And we are suffering along with it. And some of us get on our knees, we can't find a job, lost a job, job isn't good enough. And we pray and we pray that that job will come back. And it seems like God has just left us at times, doesn't it? God isn't answering my prayers anymore. What's wrong? What's wrong? We're in the fifth field. We're headed to the sixth field. That's what's wrong. The blessings are being removed and they're being removed from us at the same time. And they're going to be removed until there's not much left and we have to depend on God for the very life that we breathe. And to keep from being killed by Satan and his minions. Did Paul feel at some time that perhaps God had removed his blessings when he was floating around in the Mediterranean on a stick? And that's all he had and there were sharks below and there were waves above. Did Peter, when he was dying, being martyred, boy, God has forsaken me. Did Stephen, when his stone started bouncing off his head, say, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What about Jesus Christ on the stage? Do we suffer the same thing Christ did? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that alone, like God had just left him. And indeed he had, because of your sins and mine. We are going to feel that alone. We are going to feel that God is not there at times. And this is going to increase and get worse and worse, brethren. I know I'm not painting a rosy picture here, and I know we like to think that God is going to answer our prayers. Ultimately, he will. But we are going through a great deal of privation along with our brothers in Israel. And hopefully, we will learn compassion, mercy, and love instead of backbiting and hating and stabbing. Spiritual lessons are just ahead of us, and I don't think they're too far ahead of us. How will we react? Will we think, well, God's gone away? Will we be offended? Will we give up? God doesn't answer my prayers anymore. He must have forgotten about me. I think John quoted that one scripture there where it says that <laughs> they'll kill you, but not one hair of your head will be lost. Well, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Save my hair and lose my body. Because you'll be killed. But I'll remember every hair hair on your head when it comes time to resurrect you. It isn't that God is not going to be aware of us, brethren. It's not that God is not going to be interested so minutely and so finitely in our every thought, in our every emotion, in our every feeling. He is going to see it all. He is going to grieve through it all. He is going to hurt through it all but he is going to allow it to happen to us. That we might suffer along with our brethren who died under that altar. Now, mercifully, God is going to allow a way of escape somewhere in this scenario. And he told us to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape. God is not a respecter of persons, but he shows mercy upon whom he will show mercy. He has reserved that right unto himself. He told us individually to pray. So we go. I hope we remember that. I hope that's part of our prayer. 
not just selfishly, but he did. That's one of the few things he told us when this end times come to pray specifically about. <laughs> and now even the Sabbath is under attack. I read the latest plain truth, which I don't normally do. Last night, a whole series of little articles there about the Sabbath. They talked about how wonderful the Sabbath is. Or there was some little twist there that leads me to believe it's going to go the way of a lot of other doctors I saw. And the Sabbath is very much a part and parcel of the covenant with God and the sign between him and his people. And if the sign, even if they retain the Sabbath, if it's just another day, there was one little comment made in there that, oh, we'll look forward to the day when every day can be a Sabbath. Kingdom of God. The groundwork is being laid, brethren. Little hints are coming out now and then that maybe funding keepers can be in the kingdom of God. Sunday is the mark of the beast! It's not a sign between God and his people. You really think people who keep Sunday are going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb? Aren't there any standards in the Bible? Wow! coming. What do you expect from men? Grievous wolves. Less love. Offense. With some few men, you will be able to see the love of God for those who work together and do know their God. They will do exploits. Why do we get into some old king anti wars about Who's the most righteous? Which is the Philadelphia church as opposed to the others? Everybody wants to be Philadelphia, nobody wants to be the others. We got some high stakes here. We got some horrible things going to happen here. All these little arguments are just going to go away. All these little technical doctrinal things are just going to go away. When you can't find a bag of rice and all you have is a rat and it's unclean, you've got a choice to make. It may not be a long choice, but someone will take that rat before you have a chance to cogitate uh, too long about it. Make your decision quick. Are you faithful in little things now? How about then, when you're really, really hungry? Americans aren't used to being hungry. So expect betrayal, murder, war, persecution of men in the coming months. You've seen how. Expect a few to remain faithful. Cling to them. What do you expect from the church? Famine of the word? Faking of the covenant of God? No family? No Sabbath? Or love that isn't love? It's about John 16, 2, where they think they'll kill you if you've got a service. Great feeling of love. The false love not based on the commandments of God. We expect the work to be done. I'm a dark, no man can work. What do you expect to see? Same old lie. Expect miracles. I'm not talking about crying Madonna that can't be proved much here or there. I'm talking about things that are going to be on CNN and ABC, CBS, NBC, and they're going to outshine the OJ trial. That's going to be Kenny Andy. Great miracles and wonders, lies, deceptions, murder. Satan will come down having great wrath, knowing he has but a short time. Remember all the times Mr. Armstrong used to say, I think the devil got cast down. I think he's here now. <laughs> things will get bad in the church. I mean, things will get really bad for a while. You think that had occurred. Then they back off. And a year or two or three or four later, he'd say, I think Satan's been cast down because of the tremendous pressure. Is this the weekend? I don't know. Don't have any idea, really. We'll know here in about 48 hours, I guess. Not this one, though. It is coming. The horseman came riding. Riding. It's inexorable. It's going to happen. The horsemen are riding now. They're not just riding in Rwanda. 
not just writing in Bosnia, not just writing in Somalia. They're writing to an American. We're going to feel the same things here. What do you expect from God? To recap, the apparent and perceived blessings that we've enjoyed as a result of Abraham's obedience going away. And God is not forsaking you and me because Israel's blessings are going away. We're just not going to get some of those things that we have expected over the years to be answered anymore. We're going to get prayers answered that have to do with certainly far more serious things than cars and houses. Expect the marks of the beast. There is hope, though. I don't mean to sound all gloomy today. I want us to face realistically what is about to happen to us. Because it is, brethren. I'm not crying wolf wolf. We've already seen the wolf. Maybe there may be not this is the weekend. But it's going to seem for a while to us that God is gone. Must we really understand the plan and the picture of what's about to happen? And some will do exploits. That's why they'll be hated so much. It's because there is going to be someone to oppose the beast and the false prophet. There'll be someone to oppose those who have forsaken the covenant of God. Those who oppose it, those who stand for the truth, who stand up for God and will answer every reason for the hope that lies within them, are going to be hated of all. You think we're going to get our 15 minutes the same? You bet. You don't have to do anything. Just stand for what you believe. Do what you believe. You'll get your 15 minutes on the stage. It's going to happen. Let's go back to Revelation 21. Now, if this discourages you so far, if this frustrates you so far, we need to do it again next week. Because we need to get the picture of what is coming. But once again, the scene was changed. Let's read Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. If we endure to the end of all this, we're going to see this, brethren. It's true and it's faithful. We've got to believe it with all of our hearts, minds, bodies, souls, and beings. Because once you break trust, a relationship begins flying apart. You see it in businesses, you see it in marriages, and you can see it between God and Jesus. Don't ever let your trust in God be broken. Because it's Satan or his minions, evil men, can in any way, through persecution, through bloodshed, through famine, through these horsemen riding through the earth, if in any way he can begin to make you think that God is not there and God has forgotten you when you're out there contemplating whether to eat that rat or not, then he has. Never let that trust in God be broken. Paul didn't let it be broken when he was floating out there. Isaiah didn't let it be broken when they stretched him out there and took a saw and started cutting him in half and his gut started catching on the saw and blood started running down on the ground. He never lost his trust in God. 
Abraham never lost his trust in God as he raised his arm, poised to send that knife through his son's chest. And Hebrews 11 recounts many, many more stories. Never let your trust in God be broken. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. For, after all, at the end of pain, God starts of the flattering strength. End of translation.